Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox and in Washington, D.C. have Ben Olson. Ben, how are you? Doing good. I'm a little tired. <laughs> it's a busy time of year, right? Yeah, it's a busy time of year and I'm also trying to uh, wake up earlier and go to bed earlier because um, I tend to stay here late after the class is over and it's just, I don't know, it's too late. I leave like 12.30 sometimes. <sighs> One o'clock. Yeah. Wow. No, I never do that. I come pretty much. Well, actually, I end up like going out for dinner at 10 o'clock a lot of times after yeah. class is over, which is also stupid. So I would love to get on an earlier um, earlier schedule, but I just don't know how to do that. With get, it's You can't go to sleep right after class, right? No, you can't go to sleep. And I feel like there's a lot of emails that sort of pile up and I, I don't, I don't know. The problem is I think, well, in theory, I could do respond to them in the morning, but then by the time the morning comes, other things are going on. So then I don't get back to him to the next, like later that day, the next day. Yeah. Or whatever. So I just like to get stuff done, but at night and get it out of the way. Yeah. But I don't also like the lifestyle. So I switched this morning. I woke up at 730, which I'm sure people will laugh at because I know some of my students get up at like five <laughs> yeah. or six. It's just crazy. I can't even imagine that. But um, 730 for me is early. So Yeah, I feel bad complaining about my life. Like all my students, you know, are working and going to school and going to a four hour LSAT class two nights a week <laughs> and doing tons of homework, you know. And meanwhile, yeah. I'm like, oh, man, I had to get up at eight today. Dang, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so today's show, we are going to do at least one logical reasoning question from the June 2007 LSAT. We're going to do that at the top of the show. Uh, we are going to take some LSAT questions from listeners, and then we are going to splice in a pre-recorded uh, interview that we did about the new LSAT accommodations. Uh, there's been a case and a decision and a bunch of news, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, to one of the parties in that case or in that ongoing uh, LSAT accommodations issue. That sound okay for an agenda, yeah. Ben? Yeah, sounds great. Right. So we had uh, Anne Levine on recently, and we have a little bit of a clarification from that uh, episode. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so on that episode, uh, someone had asked what would happen if they took a class again um, what would happen with their GPA calculation? Because just a re quick recap, you have to submit your transcript to LSAC. LSAC then recalculates your GPA to sort of standardize all transcripts so that they uh, are calculated on the same basis. And the student had taken a class and done poorly and then was trying to decide whether to retake it. And the question is, what would happen with the LSAC calculation? And what Anne was saying was that um, LSAC would not uh, calculate in the second grade or the retake grade. So our conclusion was there would be no point in retaking the class. But then um, it sounds like things have changed, or at least from what Ann can tell, things have changed. And here is the official policy that Ann sent us. Um, it's on LSAC's website, and she just wanted everyone to know that things have changed. It says all grades and credits earned for repeated courses will be included in the GPA calculation if the course units and grades appear on the transcript. 
Um, then it goes on to say, a line drawn through course information or a grade does not eliminate the course from GPA calculation if the course units appear on the transcript. <laughs> kind of sounds like a, an LSAT question, but yeah. in any case, yeah. So repeated courses will be included. She then sent us, um, I think on her blog, she linked to more details about GPA calculation and so on. And it's actually got a lot of things that sort of surprised me. So I think we should probably link to that on our blog sure. as well, just so people can find it. Thinkinglsat.com, you'll find a link to this LSAT uh, page that we're talking about. Yeah, so this is these are the, the, the policies that dictate how they calculate your GPA. Um, the basic theme that I noticed was that if your school considered a withdrawal or an incomplete class or some other anomaly to be quote non-punitive then it would not be included in the calculation i have no idea what non-punitive means but you know at the end of the day the easiest thing here to do is to submit your transcript and see what gpa you get because you can't change it except for maybe i guess if you want to repeat a class and in that case you would repeat I'm, it. I'm glad we're putting this correction in because if somebody is trying to decide you know their their semester or their next semester or whatever they're still in school and they're still taking classes and they're trying to decide whether or not they should retake i mean this is useful it sounds like the old policy was they were just going to take the first grade and that's it the new policy yes. sounds like mm -hmm. it's going to be they're going to count all of the grades if it, if it appears, if on, it your appears on the transcript, somewhere. yeah. It's yeah. weird because it's like schools then might decide to change suit and for the benefit of their students just remove, if you retake a class, they're going to have to remove the old grade from your transcript in order for you to get a better grade or in order yeah. for you to get a better LSAC calculation. But whatever, are they yep. really going to change the way they work just because of the LSAC? I mean, probably not. Probably not, yeah. And yeah, totally. If you're already graduated or if you want to know how the LSAC is calculating your GPA, there's really nothing you can do about it. Just upload your transcripts and then let them do the calculation. Yeah. Yeah. Stop worrying about it so much. Yes. Spend that time studying for the LSAT, which is something you can actually control. Yes. Yeah. And thanks, Anne, for um, the clarification. She's uh, obviously very thorough and wants to make sure that she's getting out the accurate information. So we appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's dive into the June 2007 LSAT. Yeah. If we're ready. This is uh, an ongoing project. We've been working our way through some logical reasoning questions from the June 2007 test. You can just Google June 2007 LSAT and you will find that uh, PDF. It's the one test that's free. And you can just uh, work your way through that test with us over the next three years we'll be done with it <laughs> the, at the rate that we've been going. But uh, we are going to dive into the logical reasoning. I believe it's section two on the test. And we are have worked our way all the way up to question number nine. Great. Uh, you want to read it, Ben? Sure. So question nine says, although video game sales have increased steadily over the past three years, we can expect a reversal of this trend in the very near future. Okay, um, a little surprising, I guess. It's been going up, and now they think it's going to go down. Um, yeah, you, I, I, right. If you're engaged, you're like, wait, what? The evidence is video game sales have been increasing steadily, and now you're making a prediction about the future that's the exact opposite of that. Yeah. I wonder why. Yeah, I wonder why. And uh, they then say, historically, 
over three quarters of video games sold, so three fourths of video games sold, have been purchased by people from 13 to 16 years of age. The sentence goes on. I'm going to stop right there for a half second. That's interesting. I didn't know so many video games were bought by that age group. I guess, hmm, maybe that's not too surprising. Video games are probably not by, bought by older people, but that's that's a lot of, uh, that's a high percentage of video games, 75% by that age group. Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I would just say, okay, that's a historical fact. It doesn't have to remain true in the future. That's true. Um, I am, I'm very surprised that over, th this doesn't actually seem like a fact that's probably true in real life, that <laughs> over three quarters of video games have been purchased by people from 13 to 16. That seems almost impossible. Mm -hmm. um, but we're going to accept that as a fact for purposes of working our way through this question, right? That sounds like a premise of the argument. We're not going to argue with premises. That's right. We're not going to argue with it. And it still hasn't explained why they think the trend is going to go down, why sales are going to decrease. But yeah, so far, I'm expecting an additional fact that's going to make it so that, and that's why we think the trend is going to reverse. Yep. Okay. So this sentence goes on. It says, comma, and... And I, I just want to take a half second to point out, when you see a comma and an and, and you have two independent clauses on both sides, they're probably both premises because they basically, that and means these two sentences are on the same level in some ways. Okay. One is not supporting the other. So in any case, it says, and the number of people in this age group is expected to decline steadily over the next 10 years. Okay. So we're not going to have as many 13 to 16-year-olds around. I guess uh, people haven't been having as many babies recently or something. Yeah. And uh, if that group is going down and they account for, or historically have counted for three quarters of video games sold, then I guess, yeah, I mean, this argument kind of makes sense. What do you think? Yeah, the argument is reasonable as far as it goes, right? It's not on its face unreasonable. Mm -hmm. But... I would not be nodding along here. Uh, I would be doing the exact opposite of that. I think the most important skill that we can teach is simply to be critical when you read these arguments in the logical reasoning. Um, if you end that argument going, well, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, historically, three quarters of the video games have been purchased by 13 to 16 year olds. And if we're gonna have less 13 to 16 year olds, then obviously video game sales are going to decline obviously mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right I, I think if you, if that's you if you're like nodding along well yeah yeah then you're just not doing it right i think you need to be going wait a minute not so fast yeah i think students get confused on this a lot it's the conclusion was that this trend is going to reverse in other words the sales are going to go down and when you said it's a reasonable argument or sounds reasonably on its face I think people get confused when we start attacking it, but that's because when it comes to a conclusion, conclusions could certainly be true. They could be true. Um, in some cases, they absolutely can't be. The argument is so bad that it's almost like the argument disproves the conclusion or something strange like that. But in a lot of cases, the conclusion is certainly reasonable or something that could be true. But when someone draws a conclusion, they're saying that that is true. That that's something that must be true. So you have to look at it through those lens and say, wait a sec, you're saying this absolutely 100% has to be true. 
even if I sound like a jerk and I come up with one stupid esoteric reason why that might not be true, that's a problem with your argument. Yeah, the, the LSAT prayer would be, you know, I, it's like, I will grant the truth of your premises, but I will vehemently disagree with your conclusion. <laughs> the LSAT prayer. <laughs> I don't know. It's like a mantra, right? It's, it's like a, this, the way you need to be doing it yeah, yeah. is you need to be accepting the premises, but you need to be really resistant to the other conclusion. Yeah, even I mean, it, even if it's reasonable, you just say, "Look, as long as it doesn't have, as long as I'm not forced to accept it, I can find problems with it." Sometimes the argument will actually be perfectly logically valid. Yep. You know, if A then B, and if B then C, therefore, if A then C, mm-hmm. and I would have to say, "Okay, fine." Yep. But in this case. It's like, here's a historical fact, here's a trend, therefore, because of this historical fact and this trend, therefore, I'm going to make this prediction about the future. Mm -hmm. And especially when we're making predictions about the future, we, we really need to be objecting. We need to be coming up with reasons why that prediction might not really actually come to fruition. That's right. Okay, cool. So uh, do you have any other thoughts before we go into the... Question. Well, I mean, I would make a prediction. You know, I, I haven't even read the question stem yet, but I have an objection to this argument. Mm. I mean, we've been talking about this totally abstract, but would you, should we make our objection? Sure. I have an objection. Go for it. I bought a shit ton of video games when I was 13 to 16 years old. Historically, sure, all the video games have been purchased by people 13 to 16 years old. But when I turned 17, I didn't stop playing video games. Uh, I'm 39 now and I play the shit out of video games. If you would like to hear me talk about video games, I have another podcast called The Watcher available on iTunes where I talk about video games and movies and books and music and all kinds of other shit. But I was playing Batman Arkham Knight last night after my class till one in the morning. So I, so my objection is I get it that historically 13 to 16 year olds have played video games, I have bought video games. I get it that there are going to be less 13 to 16 year olds in the future. I accept both of those to be true. Mm -hmm. But I don't accept that it has to be true that 13 to 16 year olds are always going to be the people who purchase the bulk of the video games. Because maybe things have changed, maybe things will change, maybe people, maybe older people are going to start buying more video games. Maybe younger people are going to start buying more video games. Yeah. I guess a further objection would be, even if there are less people in the 13 to 16-year-old range, and even if only 13 to 16-year-olds are going to buy video games... Maybe they'll buy more. It's possible that they're going to buy three times as many video games. Yeah. So this is where, I mean, we could go on all day, right? Objection after objection after objection. What about this? What about this? What about that? Mm -hmm. Eventually, we have to stop and actually read the question stem and go attack the question. But what most students do is they just fail to make those objections they read the question stem they get right into the answer choices and then they're just getting like battered around by the lsat's bullshit answer choices and instead they should be really trying to anticipate yeah and uh a lot of that's because they feel time pressure which they should resist um but the other thing i think too is that even if you make a prediction that is not what the correct answer seems to tie into i think the act of making the prediction 
makes you familiar with the argument and its vulnerabilities to a point where when you see an answer choice, although it's different from what you predicted, you're much more susceptible to seeing that as a problem. You say, oh, because you're actually familiar with the evidence. You're familiar with the conclusion and how they got there. Yeah, that's a good point. If, if you can't make an objection, then maybe you just don't even know what was in the argument. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's like making, sometimes you'll predict exactly the answer, and maybe we already have. But sometimes you'll predict the right type of answer, and that's a good indicator that you're, that you're actually engaged. If you're not making any prediction whatsoever, then maybe you don't have any idea what the evidence is and you don't have any idea what the conclusion is. Yes, exactly. Right? I'm, I'm like, make, when I, re, I get done reading this argument and I'm like making a face, like I smelled something bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, whoa, what? What is that? And I think if you're not doing that, then you're probably just not doing the test really aggressively enough. Mm -hmm. I agree. All right. Should we go on? Yeah. Um, I think one takeaway here, just if you want to, apply you've already said this but if you want to apply this to future questions the the flaw here is basically making a future prediction on past events, yeah right absolutely and that's the yeah. general flaw watch out for that okay so yeah. which one of the following if true would most seriously weaken the argument we've already talked about some serious problems i have a feeling we probably covered all of them but maybe we'll find something new in any case is this a flaw question or a weakened question or what is this? Uh, this is a weakened question because it's saying which one of the following if true. So basically the five answer choices are going to be five statements uh, or facts, if you want to think about it that way, that we have to accept as true. We can't take issue with the answer choices either, just like we can't take issue with the premises. Um, we have to accept them as true. And then we're going to look for a fact that does the most damage to the conclusion in particular, as opposed to a flaw question in which you're being asked to describe in sort of abstract language what the argument failed to do or yeah. missed. I don't know about you, but for the first, like when I was a baby LSAT teacher, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was, I started out teaching for PowerScore, when I was a baby LSAT teacher, I, I remember not having any idea what the difference was between weekend questions and flaw questions. Mm -hmm. it, took, it took me a while to get it. I don't know if maybe the, the power score lessons that I was teaching didn't make it clear enough, but the distinction again is what? In flaw questions, you're being asked to describe what's wrong, whereas yeah. in a weekend question, you're actually given ammunition to attack the argument with specific yeah. facts. And so they seem similar, but there's actually quite a big difference, right? Mm -hmm. um, flaw questions, we have to put flaw questions into the family. Really, it's, it's sort of under the giant must be true umbrella mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Where a flaw question, you always say, Ben, you kind of taught me this. Step one, did the argument do it? Mm -hmm. Right? Whichever yeah. answer choice we're picking, it, it has to be present in the argument. We have to say, oh, no, yeah, they definitely did this. Yeah. And then step two, it's a problem that they did this. Yeah. So that's the flaw analysis, which is it starts off very must be true like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? We're looking for a flaw that is inherent in the argument, which means we can't pick something that goes further than what the argument actually went. Yeah. So it's a lot like a must be true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas weakened questions are dramatically different in that there's no such thing as too strong of an answer for a weakened question, right? Yes. Yeah. Because it's which one, if true would most seriously weaken the argument. So 
flaw questions do tend to prefer kind of more weakly stated answer choices just because they have to be something that we know for sure was in the argument. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas weakened questions, we're trying to change the argument so we don't care how strong the answer is in a weakened question. Yes. Okay. Great. So answer choice A, and remember the conclusion that we're trying to weaken is that they expect the trend to reverse. In other words, they expect video game sales to go down. Yes. Um, so if it makes us feel like they're going to go down, then that strengthens it. If it doesn't make us feel anything, does nothing. If it makes us feel like it's going to stay or go up, that would be, uh, well, actually, well, anyways, let's go through them. So A, most people 17 years old or older have never purchased a video game. Uh, does this help or hurt the argument? Or nothing. I feel like that could only possibly strengthen the argument. I agree. A, a seems like a clear strengthener. Yep. Crosses so one out. out. Either it strengthens it or it does not weaken it, right? It doesn't do anything. So yeah. this is out. B, video game rentals have declined over the past three years. I could also read that as a strengthener. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, we know sales have been going up, but hey, look, rentals have been going down, and plus the demographic is going down, and... It mm -hmm. seems like a fact that would that that could conceivably strengthen. I suppose you could also read it as a as a weakener, but you'd have to help it to make it a weakener, right? <laughs> you have to like help it, it a be, lot. Yeah. Well, it would be like, hey, no, actually, um, video game rentals are going down because more people have are making the decision to buy. Mm -hmm. So that, in the, but then that's like just not really what B says, right? You're adding on to the answer choice. Mm -hmm. I really am not in the business of helping answer choices be the answer. Yes. I'm in the business of eliminating ones that I think are wrong. Yes. So B is, you know, at worst, it's a strengthener. And at best, it's a uh, pretty weak weakener that needs help. So I, I don't think that's going to be our answer. I agree. C, new technology will undoubtedly make entirely new entertainment options available over the next 10 years. Seems like a strengthener to me. Yeah, because you're saying you're thinking that the new technology will offer new venues, and so people will stop buying video games. It says entirely new entertainment options. Yeah, that doesn't sound like video games to me because that wouldn't be entirely new entertainment option. Excellent point. I mean, that seems again. If you can read it as a strengthener, it's probably not the answer for a weekend question. Mm -hmm. D. The number of different types of video games available is unlikely to decrease in the near future. So, yeah, okay. There are a number of different types of video games. Things aren't going to change in that regard. I don't know what to think of that. It just doesn't. I don't see how that does anything one way or the other. Mm -hmm. I don't see why different types of video games are really relevant. Unlikely to decrease means not likely to change, at least in that direction. Mm -hmm. I don't see how that would weaken. I don't know. I. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So let's take a look at E. Most of the people who have purchased video games over the past three years are over the age of 16. Wow. So this almost sounds like it's going against the premise. It's not because the premise was based on what was historically true. Yep. But if most people, so more than half, definitely not three quarters, um, when it comes to the 13 to 16 year olds. But in any case, if most of the people who have purchased video games over the past three years are over the age of 16, then that means older people are starting to buy them. And so this demographic is, 
Yeah, it's like what, what you said. Basically, uh, the older people are going to carry the torch. Yeah, I mean, if we accept E, right? This is a weakened question, so mm -hmm. we need to accept E as true and then see if it weakens the conclusion. Mm -hmm. The conclusion is, hey, we're, there's going to be less video game sales in the future because 13 to 16-year-olds have historically been the ones who have bought video games and there's going to be less 13 to 16-year-olds in the future. E says, well, yeah, but lately, most of the people who have purchased video games over the past three years uh, are over the age of 16. So even though historically over three quarters of video games sold have been purchased by people from 13 to 16 years of age, that trend has been changing recently. Mm -hmm. And you know, as the 13 to 16 year olds age, they keep playing video games. Now they're no longer 13 to 16 year olds anymore, but they're still buying video games. And that would really make this argument look silly. Yeah. So I think pretty clearly our answer is E. Removes any clouds we had about D. I don't think we were tempted to pick it, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so D to me, it struck me as irrelevant or I just don't know what this does. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, that's not, I, I want an answer that speaks to me, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. We, we had a pretty strong prediction or we had a pretty strong idea what was wrong with this argument. We made a prediction. I couldn't help but think about myself in real life. I did buy video games when I was 13 to 16. I still buy video games now. E is basically saying exactly that. So, you know, I, I had a good prediction. A, B, and C all seemed like strengtheners. D seemed irrelevant. And then E is just like a really good match for our prediction. So the answer there has to be E. Yeah, excellent. Cool. Well, we have uh, about 15 minutes, I guess, um, to do some listener questions. Does that sound good? Yeah, it sounds good. We can go a little longer right. too, probably. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, we got tons of listener questions. Thank you for continuing to send your questions. You can hit both Ben uh, and me at help at thinkinglsat.com. Um, you can also email us individually, ben at strategyprep.com, nathan at foxlsat.com. And we are here to help. And when you send in questions, we don't have to do any show prep. So that's really much appreciated. That's a joke. Um, no, not that we do any show prep. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we wouldn't do it anyway. Um, but <laughs> true, true. Okay, so we have some questions from listeners. You want to just dive right in? Here? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. If I guess, go ahead, Ben. If you're ready. Yeah. Okay. So this is uh, Benny. That's right. The first one. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he's asking a question about uh, JD MBA, and he says, "Thank you for the great work you put into the podcast. I listen to you guys almost every day. Awesome. Thanks." I'm preparing yeah. for the upcoming December LSAT and I had a few questions. Okay, so number one, he says, how important do you think having a graduate degree is to admission into a good school such as Georgetown? I would say, yeah, I mean, my gut there would be important as in necessary. Well, clearly not. Mm -hmm. Most people who go to law school do not have graduate degrees. Yep. So it is not important in the sense of necessary. It is also not important in the sense of sufficient. It's not like you're going to just waltz right in because you have a previous graduate degree. Mm -hmm. Will it be a factor? Or it's, 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 all, it's only going to be a feather in your cap. Yeah. I mean, I guess it would. let's take a look at what else he says here because it might depend on what he got his graduate degree in and if that sort of plays into his narrative as to why he's applying to law school. Yep. So it says, after getting a BA in psychology, I have recently started my MBA. Do you think this will have a positive impact on my chances of admission? 
I have a 3.34 undergraduate GPA and was wondering if they would favor my undergrad GPA over my grad GPA. So it sounds like he's, I think there's two questions going on here. One is, is his GPA, his graduate GPA going to help him, given that he has a lower GPA, at least for Georgetown, uh, for his undergraduate? And if he does get a higher GPA in grad school, I'd say, yeah, that's going to help you. Um, it's not going to help you. They're going to put a lot of emphasis on your undergraduate GPA because that's how they're comparing everyone else. But uh, I think it would definitely help you to say, hey, look, my grad GPA is higher, so this is really where I'm at right now. Please take that into consideration. Sure. Uh, you can make that case. And because it's a case you can make, you probably should make it. Yes. Because that's what lawyers do. But they are, it's very clear, okay? Not everyone has a graduate GPA. Uh, graduate GPAs do tend to be a lot higher than undergraduate GPAs in most cases. There are, at least in many, many cases, there are, there are, trust me, I have multiple graduate degrees and my graduate GPAs, even though I'm the worst student in the world, my graduate GPAs are all higher than my undergraduate GPA. And it, the truth is that many master's programs are like lots of free A's. Mm -hmm. And schools know this, and schools have no way of comparing someone with a graduate GPA to an undergraduate GPA. So when they do their primary admissions decision, they're going to be using only your undergraduate GPA. Mm -hmm. When they, 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 they use a spreadsheet, okay? They use an index. We've talked about this before on the show. They use an index when they evaluate candidates, and that index is a hybrid of your undergraduate GPA and your LSAT score. Uh, so your graduate GPA is not going into that spreadsheet. All else equal, or once you've gotten yourself into consideration at a school, then absolutely they will look at your every, every shred of evidence that you provide them, including, hey, look at this, I have a master's or I'm working on a master's. And they'll also consider, oh, look, I've gotten good grades in my master's program. But the first cut, and it doesn't even matter how long ago your undergraduate experience was, the first bit of analysis, the first thing that they're going to see about you is your undergraduate GPA, not your graduate GPA. Very good point. Okay. Now, the other question I think that's going on here, well, I don't know if Benny's asking this or not, but when he says, I've recently started my MBA, I'm thinking yes. to myself, why are you going to law school? It yes. feels to me like Benny is trying to do what I think a lot of people do these days, which is to try to become an expert in a lot of different things so they can keep all their options open. But the reality is, whatever you end up doing, you're going to either be a predominantly a lawyer or predominantly in business. Yes. And so if you're already leaning toward business, I would say save the money, save the time, and I usually don't swear, so <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say kick wait. ass in, in yeah. your MBA program. I don't know why. It's, it's, a, it's a long story. But anyways, <laughs> that was, that was the, the, the words that came to my mind, though. So do really well in your MBA program and just pursue that as best you can if that's what you want to do. You should really think about what excites you if the MBA stuff is not exciting you and sitting behind a desk and researching legal cases and hitting your head on the wall, um, I don't have any bias here, uh, is something that <laughs> sounds more appealing, then yeah, maybe you should go to law school. But um, 
I feel like you're trying to keep all the doors open. In some ways, that kind of shuts a lot of doors, too. Well, it especially shuts the doors when you rack up a whole ton of debt, mm -hmm. you know, and, and if I, I really do kind of wish that young people didn't decide so early or try to decide so early what they were going to do with their lives. You know, I, I could see if, if I wouldn't have gone straight to UC Davis and studied business, uh, it's very possible that five years later I would have decided, you know, I actually do want to like try to be a doctor or something. And I could have gone in an entirely different direction if I wouldn't have chosen so soon. Um, doing an MBA, doing an L a JD, those are both really expensive. Mm -hmm. If you have unlimited money, then I guess there's no reason not to do whatever. Mm -hmm. But assuming that most people don't have unlimited money or don't, most people don't have unlimited time, I don't know why people are so aggressive to pursue all of these certifications. Mm -hmm. uh, I have both an MBA and a JD. Benny's talking about his next question starts with, I have the option of applying to a JD MBA, thereby saving a year of studies overall. So it looks like, you know, that's, he doesn't know which direction he's going to go. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I have to echo exactly what you say, Ben. If you want to be a practicing lawyer, you know, if and only if you want to be a practicing lawyer, mm -hmm. you should go to law school. If you don't want to be a practicing lawyer, then you probably should not go to law school. And so that's what I would ask Benny is just like, dude, are you going to be a lawyer or what? Yeah. And if you are going to be a lawyer, then I don't know why you're getting the MBA. I, I, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I guess people don't really understand how crazily esoteric and arcane legal study really is yeah you know it 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 is it's like learning a new magic language that only lawyers speak mm -hmm. the reason why you go to law school the reason why you do do the bar is so that you can speak the magical lawyer language so that you can participate in the magical lawyer lawyer world and once you have the jd you're a member of the club and the mba does absolutely nothing for you as far as getting into that club mm-hmm and, you know, are you going to learn things in your MBA program? Sure. But I feel like you're not going to learn anything there that you can't learn in a million other ways mm -hmm. as a lawyer. And so I just don't, I don't get it. I, I feel like the JD, if you're going to be a lawyer, the JD is the necessary condition and completely trumps the MBA anyway. So I just don't know why you would do the MBA. On the other hand, mm -hmm. if you're going to be a business person, I really don't think the JD does anything for you. No, I think you're exactly right. I think a lot of times people think, oh, well, all the stuff that I could learn in law school about the law and so forth <laughs> is going to be really helpful. That is such crap. I have to say, it is such bullshit. It is. When, it, when someone says, oh, you can do anything with a law degree, yeah, I, it's going to teach me about the way the system works. No, it's not. I'm sorry, but it's not. Well, the thing is, is you might learn things about, you know, Congress and the interaction of governments in a, or the different branches in a way that you just don't learn in high school and so forth. But if you want to know that stuff, you can go learn that pretty easily. Oh, my God. For a lot less money and a lot faster. Go talk to people who know. Go talk to lobbyists. Get a job at a lobbying firm. And work there for six months and you will walk away with so much more knowledge that's applicable to the world than you will theorizing in class about torts and you know battery criminal procedure yeah. 
and on and on yeah. and on. Yeah, get on Wikipedia. Like, if you want to know the law, I, there's a lot. I get a I get a lot of like the really naive students in class are like, well, I don't know what I want to do, but I know that law school it'll make me a better citizen because I'll know about the way our laws work. Mm -hmm. And they want to know. They specifically usually want to know about immigration, or they specifically want to know about you know, environmental stuff, or they specifically want to know about whatever, mm -hmm. some aspect, you know, even if they're like business minded, they want to know about corporations and that kind of shit, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there is absolutely nothing stopping you from going to Wikipedia and reading all of the black letter law and the really practical, useful, like, here's the way the system works. Here's the most current relevant law that everyone's <laughs> fighting over. <laughs> right, because... Every class in law school starts off with like, let's take it back to 1579. <laughs> and we're in gonna England. Talk about the, yeah, in England. And we're going to talk about it the way it used to be when we were trying to dis determine who owns this cartload of manure that's being shipped on a sailing ship. You know, it's like, really? That's what does that have to do with modern day United States? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to know the law, the, there's nothing stopping you from learning the law. And that's, it's just not a good reason to go to law school. Again, unless you have unlimited time and unlimited money, in which case, absolutely. So, sorry, Benny, we are making a lot of assumptions about what you want to do. Maybe you have a very specific goal that we're not familiar with, but um, those are some reactions, something to think about at least. Yeah, and just one, one further point. I get a lot of questions from people who want to do a graduate degree because they think it will help their law school chances, mm -hmm. that is definitely a mistake. No, spend that money on, a, <laughs> this is totally biased, but spend that money on a tutor and get, get your LSAT score up. That's what's going to yeah, make the, a difference, and it's not going to take as nearly as much time yeah, or no money. No internship, no job, no graduate degree is going to do anything compared to, for the time and money, nothing is going to help you as much as improving your LSAT score. That's just the one thing that you can control easily if you work at it. I mean, not like it's easy, but if you give it three months and you throw some money at it or whatever, it, you, you definitely can improve your LSAT score. And that's really the thing, the only first thing that's going to move the needle. Sure. And even if you dig in and have to s and spend a year, which I wouldn't plan on it, but you know, some people do, uh, that's still a lot shorter than a graduate program. Yeah. And a lot less money. Yeah. I, 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 I just don't get it. It seems to me that a, a JD is for someone who really wants to be a practicing lawyer, in which case, if you really know what lawyers do and you really want to do that, you should go to law school mm -hmm. and get a JD. And then who cares about the MBA? On the other hand, an MBA, by the way, I mean, I also am not super awesomely in favor of an MBA. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I don't think my MBA helped me very much. The primary thing that I learned in business school was that any idiot can start a business. Um, okay, good. I'm any idiot. I started a business. It's been successful. But did I actually really learn anything in the MBA program that helped me be an entrepreneur? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, to me, the MBA is sort of like a certification that you get if you work at General Electric and you want to get promoted. Yeah. I, right? It's like I a climb the sense. corporate ladder kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, So I guess that's the question. Does Benny want to climb the corporate ladder or does he want to go to law school? And then I would probably be picking JD or MBA rather than do both. I agree. Uh, we okay. should probably actually continue on here because he does give yes. some numbers that are interesting because uh, I think they might, well, I don't want to dampen his enthusiasm anymore, but it says, I'm taking the December LSAT and the deadline to apply to the program is March 2015. So 
He's looking to the deadline, which is going to put him at a disadvantage, I think. I don't really know about applying to joint programs, but it's going to put you at a disadvantage for the JD program. Um, not as much this year because applications are slow, but I still think he's kind of looking at like the end of the application cycle as opposed to the middle. And then he said, yeah, I hate when people mention what the deadline is. Hmm? You shouldn't be thinking about the deadline. No, you shouldn't right? be, you thinking, should about be thinking about the deadline. About when applications open or, you know, can I get it? How soon can I get it in okay. is what you should be thinking about. Yes, exactly. And then he goes on and okay. says the required score is 160 plus. I'm not really sure what to think about that because at Georgetown a lot of people are applying with the one I mean I think the median's around 168 or something. So No, th so this is my my I edited this down a little bit mm -hmm. because I wasn't sure. Benny mentioned like the specific name of the specific program where he's doing his MBA. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he's applying to a JD MBA program at that school. Oh, I thought he so, was applying to Georgetown. Well, he no, it's it's a the question is at his school, he can get in with a 160 plus. I think they're going to let him into the JD MBA program. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if he does it there, it sounds like he's going to save a year of total studies. Oh, as because opposed it's a to going to JD MBA. But he's asking if I get 165 or higher in the by the time I sit for this December test, should I still apply for this JD MBA program at my school, or should I like shoot for a higher law school? finish my MBA and then go to Georgetown or GW since I have an LSAT score that'll get me into those schools. That's, that's the gist of the Oh, question, okay. The so question. if I get a higher score in December, say a 166, should I finish my GPA and then apply to Georgetown or GW or should I do this joint program? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I would say if I had a decent score on the LSAT, 166, my inclination is to say, well, it all comes back to what What do you want to do? Do you want to go to law school or not? And if he's yeah. not sure, then maybe he should not. He should wait and finish his MBA and then realize by that time, I really hate this and I do want to go to law school or eh, I don't know what I was thinking. And now I, I have these job opportunities and I'm going to pursue them. Yeah, I think step one is decide what you want to do with your life. We already hit that as hard as we possibly can, right? But mm -hmm. decide whether you want to do business or law and then pick one of those. If you decide that you are for sure going to be a lawyer and you want to do your MBA, then we can get into Benny's question of, should I stay at the same lower ranked law school and, and save a year? Or should I apply to a higher ranked law school, you know, and do an extra year of school, which I'm sure costs extra money Yeah, and whatever. I think at that point, my advice would be, well, if you're for sure going to apply to law school, I don't think I would apply to just one law school. Mm -hmm. And so, it, and especially if you got a really good LSAT score, I think I would advise Benny to apply broadly, because you know that if he if he like gets his 166 and the the school where he's already at says, oh yeah, okay, you can do the JDA program now. Here's how much it's going to cost. I I think I would instead I would shop that around. Mm -hmm. I would, which means I would apply to Georgetown. I would apply to GW. I'd probably apply to American. I'd probably apply to other places, you know, in the in the geographical area, and see if people start giving me scholarship offers. See if I get into really good schools, super good schools like Georgetown, and then then assess your your options at that point. Mm -hmm. I think we just don't know until Benny gets an LSAT score, and then we won't know until Benny goes ahead and applies. And I, and I, again, I really think if you're applying to one law school, you're probably doing it wrong. You, you should probably be applying to a handful or a couple handfuls of law schools just so that you can gauge your value in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that? No, I, I think that's uh, 
that's very valid. And it could, maybe he stays at the same school, but at least he can go back to him and ask for money maybe or whatever. Totally. The, the offer from Georgetown, if he's like, hey, listen, you know, school that I'm going to, I know that the JD MBA program is here and I like it here and yeah, that's very attractive. But listen, I got an offer to Georgetown and by the way, I got a scholarship to GW and you know, what can you do for me? Mm-hmm. Essentially. And because saving the year is nice, but if he's going to get a full ride to some law school somewhere else, it might be worth taking that full ride. Yeah. Which is very likely to happen if he gets his 166. Especially right? if he decides that law is really what he wants to do. Because then he can say, you know, it's right. a sunk cost, but see you later, MBA. And I'm going to go pursue law at Georgetown yeah. and never look back. Totally. Right. That's, I mean, that's a, obviously a further consideration. Like if he decides that he wants to be a white shoe law firm lawyer, or if he decides that he wants to be a, a judge or a law professor or any sort of high-powered lawyer position, well, then that would maybe argue in favor of going to Georgetown if you can get into Georgetown. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Benny, for writing in. I don't know. That's about it. Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> A lot to think about there. Hopefully uh, it's helpful. <laughs> okay, and now here comes our interview with Mika where we're talking about the LSAC accommodations issue. Hope you enjoy. Today, we have uh, Mika on the show with us, and I'm going to turn the introduction over to you. You can tell our listeners as much about yourself as you like, and your background, like what happened. You took the test. I took the test June 8th. June 8th, yeah. And I'm retaking, so. Okay. There you go. There you go. Are you planning to retake it in October? Uh, Yeah, October 3rd. Okay, cool. All Mm -hmm. right, good. So... Let's step back a little bit. You applied for accommodations, right? Yep. Okay. And what what happened? So I applied for accommodations on the LSAT uh, with the Law School Admissions Council, LSAC. And so I submitted documentation. There's a lot of documentation you have to submit. I think mine came out to over 100 pages. And these are records back to psychological assessments in... Oh. I have a disability under the ADA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act. I have attention deficit disorder, inattentive type, if that's relevant to you. And so I have documentation dating back to the summer before my freshman year of high school when I was first diagnosed. So I have documentation of accommodations from then through college up until now. So I submitted all of that along with an essay they required explaining what your disability is and why you need accommodations for that disability. I submitted it ahead of their deadline. Uh, They think they get back to you in around 14 days. So that's where it all started, I guess. So you you submitted 100 pages in documents? It goes 106 pages, including the cover letter. Oh my gosh. And so, and you, this was to get accommodations for the June test? Yes. Okay. And... What accommodations were you seeking or what, what was the option there? So my ADD manifests itself in high sensitivity to external stimuli. So what that means is a ticking clock in your test room. You may not notice it, but I notice it. People bustling out around a lot, stuff like that really can distract me more than someone without ADD. I've received since high school 50% extended time on all tests. This includes the SAT and the AP. Mm-hmm. And then I've also received either a combination of or separately the ability to use noise-canceling headphones, and oftentimes that has been paired with a separate room. And when I say separate room, I don't use what the LSAT 
defines as a separate room. They, for some reason, define separate rooms separate from the dictionary's definition of it, which would be separate from other people. I've tested in what they call an isolated testing setting. So that means I am alone. Oh, okay. So they, when they say separate room, they're saying, okay, we're going to put you in a different room with other people. It means you with all the other people who've requested accommodations. Okay. So you wanted time and a half, mm-hmm. which would be 53 minutes on each section. And yes. you only do four sections, right? I only do four sections and the writing sample. Okay, so no experimental. And then you wanted noise-canceling headphones and to be in a room by yourself. Yes. To get rid of the distractions. Okay, so you applied for it. How early did you have to apply for it? I'm not exactly sure. It was at least a month, if not more, before the test itself. I registered for the test super early, so I okay. applied around. But the whole process takes a lot longer than that, right? So if someone wants accommodations, they have to apply maybe a month. The deadline is a month before the test, but getting all those documents, I mean, 100, doc- 100 yeah. pages of documents, how long did that take you? So senior year of college, I had planned to study for the LSAT and take it. So summer before my senior year of college, I got a new psychological assessment uh-huh. in DC where we are. That cost about $2,000. Okay. That is around, I'm not exactly sure, but six to eight hours of testing without any medications if you take any or anything to that effect. So I had that done, included that. They lay out on the website what you include, but you include that. You include your grades from high school and elementary school if relevant, as in if you got tested in elementary school, it is not necessary but recommended that you include them. All your testing scores on all the standardized tests you took, documentation from your high school if relevant and your college if relevant about the accommodations you received, the SAT's document documenting, I mean, granting you your accommodations. So it's a a bundle that you have to accumulate. So it took you a few, a month or two? Well, it took me the summer before to get the psychological assessment. And then it took me a month to get all that documentation together. And I'm lucky to have a mother who kept my high school report cards. <laughs> okay. So I want to get into what happened after you applied. But before I do that, Nathan, did you have any questions for uh, Mika? No, this is great. Re- really interesting. Mika, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on. You as well. My pleasure. Okay. So um, you applied, right? And you applied close to the deadline or early or what happened? Because of issues surrounding my application, I applied closer to the deadline than I would have normally done. Issues having to do with trying to have the most documentation possible Mm. as opposed to submitting it earlier in time. That said, the LSAC does not have any formal appeals process anyway and has no rules about it. So it wasn't as though there were any time limits having to do with an appeal of a or no specified time limits having to do with an appeal of a accommodations denial that I had in my brain at the time. So I just thought I submitted on time. So, okay, so you you submitted and then you were, they denied you or you were anticipating a denial? No, so I submitted it. I didn't leave a huge amount of time before the... um, The, uh, The final deadline. The final deadline for submitting your request. Okay. Because this will make sense later, but... They had, didn't have any formal appeals process or timeline set out about an appeal pro- appeals process, so it seemed that was the deadline for submitting your accommodations. Okay, so you submitted it, and then they got back to you, and they, did they deny everything, or...? No, they denied a uh, two-thirds of it, so it, they denied it in part. They, uh, they approved 50% extended time, they put me in a small group setting, and they denied 
both the headphones, the noise-canceling headphones, and the isolated testing, or what I described as a separate room. Okay, so they denied those two things, and at this point when they denied it, it was past the deadline. It was past the deadline for an initial request. Okay, so then you asked them, you said, hey, what'd you do? You call, <laughs> you write them back, you say, hey, I want more, so, or what? So I think, I, don't, I can't remember the timeline exactly, but what ended up happening was I was, t- I, I think I called them a couple times, and I talked with someone, they said, we can't talk to you about denials, there's no one you can talk to about that, you just have to send a letter to LSAC. Okay, so you sent your letter. Yeah, to their accommodations division, I guess is what you would call it. So I sent a letter, and included in that is language about, there's a, a term under that is used in reference to the Americans with Disabilities Act that's called a reasonable accommodation. It has to do with you have a disability, you want to be able to take, in this case, take the test, and be given the same opportunity to take the test as everyone else. And for you, because you have a disability, that requires you to have an accommodation. So in that letter, I said, look, I know you've let people test test in isolation before. Mm-hmm. And I know that you have not only granted earplugs before, but there's currently a best practices panel that is involved with a lawsuit against the LSAC. And it has to do with the consent decree in the case. And that best practices panel says you should be providing earplugs when people ask for them. So that was in my letter. So this is your pre-law school opportunity to get legally involved. Yes. <laughs> so because you, you basically were making an argument in this letter about the phrase reasonable accommodation. Yeah. Which I was, is just a, a legal term that in your mind, you felt like this was a reasonable accommodation and they did not. Yes. I also had the help of a lawyer I know who does disability law. Oh, that's nice. So they did not sign it. It was all for me. It was all my intended language. That person just glanced it over and helped me firm up the language, basically. Did you like writing the letter? Because this this might be what you do as a lawyer, right? Yeah. If you didn't like it... So as, as someone who's interested in going to law school, I'm actually someone who does not want to litigate. Oh, okay. So, so this process was not as fun as not something as else. Not as fun, but it's an issue I believe in pretty deeply because there's a lot of stigmatization of people with disabilities ranging from learning disabilities to much more serious conditions. Okay. So. Yeah, so you uh, sent in this letter and they got back to you and said what? They said, well, the deadline passed for a request for an accommodation. Uh, oh, by the way, when they partially denied my accommodations earlier, they did not provide an explanation as to why I was denied them and did not provide me with any tips on how to beef up my application in order to what other documents they would need. Essentially. Okay, they just said, sorry. Yeah. So this time they said, look, you've now it said the deadline has passed to apply for uh, accommodations. So I hear directions on how to get a reimbursement. Okay. So then you wrote back to that and said what? So then um, a law firm got involved. I'm fortunate enough to have had that resource. (laughs) And they wrote what is known as a demand letter, laying out the legal claim saying, look, this is pretty clear. You denied this. You also denied an attempt at a back and forth about trying to find a way to get an accommodation that might work for both sides yeah 
if you do not respond to this letter by a certain date, we will initiate legal action. Essentially, <laughs> we will file a complaint against you. Okay. And in the letter, they talked about how there's national litigation against the LSAC for precisely these issues. And in fact, some of what the LSAC did by not explaining why I didn't get an accommodation and not providing me with instructions on how, on what additional documentations I should provide. In doing that, they actually kind of, um, they spoke against what they had previously said in the context of this best practices panel. So they're oh, okay. going against their prior word. Oh, okay. Um, wow. So then they got back to you and what did they do? They got back to us basically the night we were going to start pulling together a complaint. Okay. Um, and said, look, here, we'll grant you these accommodations, but we're not acknowledging that you deserve them. So they gave you everything? Or they, no, they or gave you? me a, they let me use noise canceling headphones, but they did not grant me an isolated testing room. But at that point, it was two weeks before my test, and that was sufficient. Okay, so it was a non-apology apology. It was a non-apology <laughs> apology in which it said, you're just being annoying, essentially. Okay. So you got the accommodation. Are you going to get the same accommodations for October? Uh, yes, I have a letter indicating I will, and hopefully when I turn up at the testing center, All right. it will be there. So this, this nationwide litigation is the one, the, 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 what you're referring to is what the DOJ the Department of Justice, right, was bringing against... Yeah, the California LSAC. case. Okay. So just a little background for our listeners. If, if you're not familiar with this whole process, um, which I'm sure not many of us are until we even think about it, but if you're at all considering getting accommodations, at least historically, the presumption has been you're not going to get them. Yeah. Uh, unless you can show <laughs> in 106 pages or something more. like that. <laughs> or more that you've always or almost always had accommodations and that you're, um, yeah, it, it basically the presumption is you're not going to get it. And, and my sense has been, I have no idea, but like my sense has been that their accommodations department is very small and because they're not processing a lot of these, right? I yeah. imagine they're just saying no to pretty much everyone. And then maybe on occasion when they feel absolutely compelled to, they're saying yes. But so this has led to litigation. You're one example, but there are many people out there who have felt that this is an inefficient process or not inefficient insufficient yeah and nathan you just read the it was a judicial opinion right that was issued by the ninth circuit or what circuit was that it was the district court for northern district um in california i believe and it was mostly upholding the panel recommendations the panel made recommendations according to the consent decree and then lsac challenged a whole bunch of the panel's recommendations but the court mostly upheld it sorry i'm not familiar with this as much can you step back for a second so there was a a consent decree and then that required some panel to come up with recommendations i know you referred to that earlier mika but what what exactly was the the consent decree so plaintiffs and LSAC came to an agreement that they were going to appoint a panel and the panel was then going to decide uh, like new policy on okay. uh-huh. accommodations. And the panel was, you know, LSAC appointed one of the people, um, plaintiffs appointed a couple of the people, then those three panelists chose another panel, something like that. <laughs> what ended up with, it's just unbelievably overcomplicated, but they end up with five panelists and the panelists have instructions according to this agreement 
Mm -hmm. that here's what your task is, is to go solve all of these issues for us and come up with a new system for how we just determine whether or not people are going to get accommodations and what those accommodations are. Okay. And so they did that. The panel goes away, they do their job, they come back with this list of recommendations, and then LSAC challenges the recommendations uh, as being outside of the mandate of the outside the mandate of the panel and challenges the recommendations on various other grounds. The okay. court ends up upholding almost all of the panel's recommendations. Okay. Uh, any interesting takeaways from that decision? No, I would absolutely. I mean, the one thing that I would say is that if you're reading it again, it's been a long time since I had read a decision. <laughs> and this decision was uh, touted as being, you know, a really well-written, well-reasoned, uh, interesting decision. It made me want to kill myself. Reading this decision made me want to kill myself. And I would I just strongly encourage people and in fact, Mika, I'm, I'm curious. You say you don't want to litigate. So what do you want to do with a law degree? Uh, I want to do public policy. Public policy. Yeah. What, what does that look like? How, how do you do public policy as a lawyer? So as a note of anyone who they, if they want to read about it, but don't want to read an opinion, the best practices panel's findings are on the LSAC's website and they're actually not a boring read and they're pretty interesting. I should have read that first and then read the... Yeah, probably. Um, I want to do policy. I think I think one law... Not that I'm going to law school for this reason, but I think law school provides a way of reasoning about the world and having conversations. It teaches you a way to do that, that, you're, that is pretty invaluable, especially if you want to do policy in that it informs the way you approach an issue. So let's say you're taking on fair housing and you're trying to come up with a policy about fair housing in your community, I think having a law degree will means that you will be not only aware of the relevant laws, one would hope, but also aware of the implications of those laws and what they pull into it. And also, it pre I think it's more likely to prevent you from inserting what I would coin as bad language. I also may want to litigate down the line, but at present, I don't like the confrontational nature of litigation. Yeah, that's that's my overwhelming takeaway from, from reading this decision is that I can just imagine myself being on either side of that case, the lawyers on either side or any party involved, <laughs> any party within shouting distance of, of that case. And it's like the worst day of everyone's life. <laughs> And in fact, that is my own experience with, you know, anytime I've been even tangentially evolved, involved in any litigation, it's just miserable. I mean, have you ever sat in a deposition? It's the worst day of your life. And it's the worst day. It seems like it's the worst day of everyone's life. Yeah. It just seems miserable. So uh, I went to law school with the idea, you know, I don't think I want to litigate. And it, it turned out to be a horrible idea for me to just even go to law school at all. So <laughs> I, I just want to caution people that, you know, if you don't know what lawyers do, if you haven't spent significant time around it, and if you don't actively want to do that, then law school very likely might not be the right decision for you. So just that's the one thing that rereading you know re reading this decision and, and 
kind of getting back into it and thinking about what my life could have been like if I would have been a lawyer. My life would have been very short if I would have been a lawyer because I would have killed myself. I just, it's, it is an excruciatingly confrontational and just fighting about every single detail and fighting about what every single word means. And it just, to me, it really strikes me as a miserable life. So I know that I'm an LSAT teacher and my job is to help people get into law school. And I do know people and we should start having them on the show from time to time. I think Ben, you know, yeah. lawyers who really love what they do and they can talk about about what they love to do. I, I, we got to do that. I've got a friend in L.A. that is just loves being a lawyer and loves the whole life. And so we should we should bring her on and we should chat to her a little bit about it. Yeah. But um, to me, it seems if you're like me at all, um, you know, I feel sorry for you. But if you are <laughs> like me. It, it would be a very painful existence. And uh, if there is anything else that you are interested in, I would pursue that stuff first before pursuing law school. I really believe that you should only go to law school if it's like you're not going to be able to sleep at night if you don't. Well, so of note, I've actually worked at a law firm for the past two years and that Although the law firm I've worked at is wonderful in so many respects, it's made me realize that I cannot deal with the f confrontation every day. And this is coming from someone who also has family members who are lawyers. And that has left an imprint. I just, I wanna, basically, I don't wanna fight about the words. I wanna have the right words before they're put into law so that people don't have to fight about them. Interesting, interesting. That, that I mean, it's not that I don't believe you. I mean, <laughs> I, I certainly believe that that's what you believe. And you very well may be right. Uh, I fear that in practice, that might not be, might not end up being what happens. But, you know, we won't know, I guess, huh? Until you've been in, in your career for well, 10 and years. We're Americans and Americans tend to be litigious so i think we are as a country individuals will fight about everything but yeah i mean that's kind of what i i took away from law school in general is that i know people go to law school and they don't want to litigate that you know they, they're like well no i'm, I'm going to do uh contracts you know for i'm going to help businesses set up their affairs and set up these contracts and whatnot and that's nice except that really the purpose of the contract is so that we have something to litigate over <laughs> you know as as someone who has been to law school people are frequently surprised to find out that i never use contracts for anything i don't i don't have my students sign a contract on the first night of class i don't i i try to avoid having contracts whenever possible because the purpose of that contract it's going to sit in the in the drawer until one side decides to sue the other and then we're going to bust out the contract but at that point it's already going to be the worst day of everyone's life <laughs> because you're litigating now so yeah. well so nathan i do have to interject here to, yeah. to be fair to to contract lawyers because i have a good friend who <laughs> does transactional work and he does say that like their whole goal in putting together the contract and he, he does contracts for large projects like dam building in you know panama or something like it involves lots and lots of money and the whole point of the transactional process is to anticipate problems and to address them and so they feel like they're doing their job well 
when they can come up with a document that obviously can cater to your client's interests, but also to anticipate and avoid problems. And so their whole plan is to create a document that's not litigated, and they feel that they've succeeded when everyone's on the same page because they did a good job drafting, not because they, you know, drafted it in such a way that now if things fall apart, they can be like, aha, gotcha with this clause or that clause or whatever. Yeah, I I have no doubt that a, a good lawyer is going to try to avoid litigation as much as possible. I, I, I totally get that. But the nature of our system is this confrontational kind of a system, right? It's a, it's in many cases, it's a zero sum uh, kind of a system. So there are incentives, it seems, on both sides to draft the contract in as favorable of terms as possible for both sides in the event that there is going to be a conflict. Sure. I don't know. I'm sure that there are contract lawyers who are very happy and that love their lives and that absolutely are trying to avoid litigation at all costs. Um, and really, I, I shouldn't, I'm not speaking for everyone. I'm speaking for my myself. And um, I just, I find it to be very distasteful. I find contracts in general to be very distasteful. And as a business person, I find my law school education to be entirely worthless. That's a chipper note. Well, I was going to tie this back to the LSAT, which is interesting in that you said most lawyers will try to avoid litigation. And I think when it comes to confronting the LSAT about a denied accommodation, I think lawyers, if they do disability law or civil rights law or something along those lines, will, will want to litigate to the extent that it will make the LSAC publicly responsible for what it's doing. But it's in the interest of the plaintiff in the plaintiffs when they try to go after the LSAC for these issues, if they send a demand letter, it's in their interest in a sense to settle. They they want to take the LSAT. Most of them probably have some sort of timeline in mind and if they initiate litigation, that'll be pretty drawn out. Um, There may be an injunction of sorts that'll make it a little less drawn out, but it'll make it drawn out. And I think that was pretty interesting because I was fortunate enough to have the resources to have a law firm involved. But I bet a lot of people applying for accommodations don't. And even if they do, and they go along the path I went along, a lot of them will settle, not for money, just for the accommodations they ask for before they get to the court. And that means the history of this fight, to a certain extent, or struggle to get accommodations isn't public. It's in these deals right before a complaint could be filed. And that way, it doesn't set any sort of precedent for people getting accommodations. So in that case, the the disability lawyer, I mean, I read some of the stuff when I was reading about the case, there were, I, I read one comment from a disability lawyer saying that as a disability lawyer, my best outcome would be to litigate myself out of a job. Yeah. Because if they if they get the outcome that they want, then they've now changed the world and they've made things right and but now they don't have a job anymore. But they're happy to do that because they genuinely believe that they're making progress and changing the world and all that. That's that's great. I mean, I love that. But you've got to want to struggle, right? You've got to for that kind of a lawyer, 
you're going to want to, you, you've got to be like, yep, I want to get in there and mix it up. I want to fight. Yeah. Um, coming, coming back to this, in terms of the accommodations, this, this case that you, or this opinion that you read, right, Nathan, doesn't it change also uh, whether or not law schools know whether you get got accommodations? Yeah, so for a while, it sounds, uh, my understanding, and I do not have a JD, so I will not purport to be any sort of authority on the matter, but for a while, the LSAT was flagging people's test scores and saying that the person, and I'm not sure the language precisely, but that the person had received accommodations. And interestingly, when I called the LSAC asking them about what test reports they wanted from my standardized tests after high school before college, they said that they wanted ones that were the formal, that were identical to the official test reports, but they could be unofficial. But on the test report, it stated that I, I had received accommodations and I had to inform them that one, none of them did that and I didn't inform them but wanted to say, well, you're actually being told not to do that to your own test reports. So they're being told to by the rec- by the the board or whatever. Is that official now? Was that that must have been one of the things that was upheld? No, Nathan. Uh, it was either just agreed to or it was upheld. But yeah, that is going to be a change in the policy. That the wow. LSAC is no longer going to put the little asterisk on your score report that says you got accommodations. I mean, I think that's huge for anyone who is debating it because that was the one downside, right? Aside from the whole process of applying for it and the expense. Um, like strategically thinking about when you apply to law school, should I apply to law school with a 165 that says I had an accommodations or should I apply with presumably a lower score that says I did not have accommodations, but now there will be no indication that you had accommodations and so you should just go for it. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, go for it unless Nathan thinks you strongly should not attend law school. <laughs> unless you don't think, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that would be true for anyone if, you, if, you're, if you're hesitant about the whole process. Um, in terms of like, and, and I guess because... Uh, these things have been upheld. I'm assuming LSAC is, they're probably going to appeal. Uh, but if they adopt them, then it's going to be a lot easier, I guess, for people to apply for accommodations, right? That's the hope, I That's think. That's the hope, yeah. Okay. Um, Nathan, did you have anything else to add from that opinion? or anything No, else? I mean, I just want to echo um, Mika saying she's not an expert because she doesn't have a JD. I do have a JD, and I am definitely not an expert. I mean, I, I do not know what I'm talking about, and this is solely just really my opinions. I'm obviously bitter about uh, my law school experience, and I, you know, I hadn't thought it through before I went to law school, and I really shouldn't have gone to law school. And so I'm, I'm just—it's kind of my mission in life, really, to to try to get people to take a step back and really think about whether this is something you want to do. So I'm sorry for kind of going off and hijacking the discussion. I no, that's, a, that's an important thing. People need to figure that out before they go, for sure. It's a lot cheaper that way. Um, in terms of like students who are considering this, do you have any specific advice? Well, I think, I'm not sure if the panel recommended and then the opinion upheld any sort of appeals process. I'm, I firmly believe there should be one, but in the event that there isn't one, the LSAC rec- says it will respond to you, respond to a, an initial request within a certain number of days. So my experience shows that you should apply significantly in advance of that certain number of days so that if something happens where they deny a request, they can't use the excuse or they can't fall back on the excuse that, well, the period in which you can apply for accommodations has ended. Mm-hmm. 
um, that would be one of my bigger pieces of advice. And I papered them with documentation and I still had this experience. So, and my documentation was pretty, like it was what some people would describe as a longitudinal history. So it goes back pretty far and it's pretty detailed. So if I couldn't get my accommodations, I don't know how much more paperwork would help to get any accommodations. Yeah, I think even if the LSAC adapts all these things, there's still going to be a huge presumption against providing accommodations unless you have a well-documented history of the need and so on. So if you're considering it because you feel like you might qualify, that probably means you won't. Well, and part of the best practices report talked about how the impression of the panel, I believe, and this is, I read this like four months ago, so I take it with a grain of salt, but that the panel understood the way the LSAC uh, approaches each application or request for accommodations. They seem to approach it with an eye towards denying, and the panel said that shouldn't be the case. You should be approaching these requests with an eye towards finding a reason to accept or to approve the accommodations. Hmm. So I don't know if that'll come to, a fru- to come to fruition. It's also a more nebulous way to describe that proposed policy, but. Another one of the recommendations was that when denying someone, the LSAC is now going to have to provide written reasons why, specific reasons why. And I have a feeling that that I mean, that sounds to me like it could be a game-changing kind of rule because if they now have to provide written explanation, you know, actual concrete reasons, then that's going to shed a lot more light on the decision-making process, which then is going to give people a lot better ammunition for when they apply, they'll know what they need to do to get the accommodations. Uh, and, and it will also, I would think, provide ammunition for litigation, you know, in or in some kind of an appeal if you feel like it's not, if they're, if they're not using fair reasons for denying. So it was a pretty, it seems to me that it's going to open up the accommodations. Um, I, I, we won't know, right? We're just speculating but it seems to me like it will lead to significantly more grants of accommodations requests. Or at the very least lay the groundwork saying this is a problem. A judge has now said that these policies should be adopted. And if they don't adopt the policies or flimsily adopt them, I guess, I think it could create the fodder to say, look, you were told to do this, you didn't do this. We're going to hold you accountable. I think they said on their website that they are adoption right whether they actually do or not is a different matter but at least publicly they're saying they are yeah I mean but I feel like you could say like you could say yes we'll provide reasons uh why you weren't granted an accommodation and once again I didn't read the opinion but you could provide detailed reasons that really help an applicant or uh, the requester or you could provide more obscure reasons that make it that don't really provide clear guidance as what uh, of what to do right which would then just be okay now we're gonna do some more litigation your favorite thing. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Well, thanks for my pleasure coming Thank- in. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about any of that? No. Okay. How's it going with your prep 
Mika. Good. I got a 179 last week. <laughs> a 179. That's awesome. Yeah, I was yeah. on. I'm uh, Ben had me do. I'm doing the oldest book, I guess, or one of the oldest books I'm okay. going through because I've done all the other ones. Yeah. Um, and I was in northern Michigan on vacation, and I got a 179, and the rest have been mid 170s. Can I ask you one tough question, Mika? Yes. What would you say, just because this is the obvious question that people are going to ask, but what would you say to someone who said, how is it fair that you're getting accommodations while you're scoring a 179? I would say, one, I'm scoring a 179 because I'm getting accommodations. Two. They wouldn't argue with that. Yeah. But I'm saying, <laughs> but I'm saying that like, so the lawyer who I worked with, I adore and he's really great. And he, his point is these people are just as bright as the other people who are scoring 179s, you're just even, evening the playing field the same way someone who is blind shouldn't be forced to take a normal test. They should be given a test in Braille. Like it's, it's making it so that I can perform to my best abilities the same way testing someone in a testing center is allowing them to perform to the best of the abilities because they don't have a disability. So my disability means to perform to the best of my abilities, I need this accommodation. I think, well, I, I don't know. I'm just like listening to you. I'm not an expert in disability issues and stuff like that. But when I think about uh, accommodating for a disability, I think that it makes a lot of sense. You say, hey, look, we're going to level the playing field. I think the real challenge, and I think the challenge that a lot of people like, I mean, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but the, the question that would be in the back of my mind is, how do you know how much to accommodate? You know, like a lot of these things are sort of like just set randomly arbitrary, like time and a half. Where did that come from? Whereas our, our gap or our deficiency, if that's the right word, or, you know, the thing that needs to be leveled, so to speak, uh, is that time and a half? Is that double time? Is that 10 more minutes? Because some, you know, a lot of yeah. people say, they're like, if I only had 40 minutes, yeah. five more minutes, I could crush this test. Yeah. So there are two things I'd say to that. I'd say one thing is... Um, well, I'd say three things. One, that I bet a lot of the people who say, if I only had five more minutes or if mm. I only had time and a half, I bet a lot of them still wouldn't get all the questions right. I think there's oftentimes it's a matter of what level you're at, and that's the level you're at. Um, that said, my second point is I wonder if some people who are saying that have a disability and haven't been diagnosed because diagnosis is difficult and it's expensive and it's very stigmatized. And so I wonder how much of our population is undiagnosed and should be receiving accommodations but isn't. Or they have been diagnosed, but it's so re close to the test that they're not going to get accommodations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my third point is that I think the way, so the way a psychological uh, assessment goes, in my experience, is they do test how long it takes you to complete a gambit of exercises mm -hmm. and they test your resilience within those exercises it's and the, these exercises span from identifying patterns to doing reading comp to doing all these other types of little exercises some of which are zany like identifying when a number pops up on a screen um, but those are used to determine what accommodations you should receive so they test 
essentially what you should be performing at and mm -hmm. then they test what you are performing at under a variety of conditions mm -hmm. or not a variety of conditions but in a variety of ways and that helps them determine what accommodations you should be receiving but also some of it of course at least in my experience or my belief has to do with self-reporting mm -hmm. i think it'd be more difficult to know that i have I'm highly sensitive to external stimuli if I never vocalized that. I just said, oh, I'm struggling with this passage, mm -hmm. but no one knew why. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the reason I'm able to vocalize that is because I know a lot about the issue and I have a very supportive family who has been there for me and help, helped me understand it, but a lot of people don't have that and that's a deficit and I think it also leads to misinformation and stigmatization. Okay, a lot of interesting points. I mean, one thing like that I think about a lot is I have a so I, I have four sons yeah well the house is always loud prolific yes and um one of them clearly struggles with reading like to the point where we've had people come in and they say yes he has a disability or I'm not even sure what it's called you know I don't know the language but um and uh, we're getting accommodations for him in school we actually homeschool but there's still a lot of interaction with school and stuff like yeah. that so but one thing that's interesting for me, this is obviously I'm not a psychologist. I'm just this is my own personal experience. But one thing about that that kid is that although he definitely struggles with reading, he's also extremely brilliant in other ways. And to me, they feel like they're interrelated. Like like his deficiency in reading is actually part of the same reason that math is so extraordinarily easy to him. And you know, beyond his grade level. And so when I think about uh, a disability or a challenge or whatever you want to call call it, I feel like a lot of these things are just everyone's different. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to, I mean, I know you, you talk about stigmatization and I'm speaking from a, 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 an area of ignorance here, but um, <laughs> like a lot of, I just, I wonder how much of this is Oh, we've we've labeled this challenge as something, and so now yeah. we call it a disability. But this challenge over here hasn't been labeled yet, so there's not a way to get accommodations for it. And how many of these disabilities are actually just benefits? In other in, ways. In other ways, you know, yeah, sure, you're, you're highly sensitive to sounds or something, but that is also makes you highly or acutely aware of every word that people say and that you're you're able to pay so much more attention you know i have no idea i'm totally making this up but a lot of things i feel like when i look at him and i think yeah this is a challenge for you but that's also seems to be why you're so extraordinarily good at running problems in his head like yeah. with math and we're always telling him no you got to write it down you get, how did you get from you know 120 to 256 and you didn't write anything you didn't do anything oh well that's the other i don't know how I, that's just the answer you know it's like these things seem related and so yeah. if we accommodate that which i feel like we should and we're seeking that because i i'm a big proponent of like if you can get accommodations go get it because that's going to help you and yeah. he should get them on his test that he takes he takes standardized tests but at the same time i'm thinking he's got this huge leg up in other ways in other ways well so there was a move i don't know whether it succeeded and i'm using the wrong words now but there was a move to call them learning differences instead of learning disabilities uh i don't i have no idea whether it succeeded but what I would say about that is, I think it is a learning difference. I think if the way we taught and the way we took tests and the content of our tests were different, I think what would happen is you would see dif different people maybe excel. Um, it, people who would qualify as a learning difference might excel a lot better if it wasn't rote memorization 
on standard, like getting into med school, let's say. Mm -hmm. If that didn't involve so much memorization, you might see a totally different group of people going to med school. I don't know if if this is true. I have no statistics to back it up, but that might be the reality of it. And I think there, my ADD benefits me in a variety of ways. I'm a lot more perceptive about things. I wouldn't, uh, I think, so there's this cool thing ADD kids do, which is called hyper-focusing. Mm-hmm. And it's when they get super focused on an issue and they're able to block a lot out, which is really cool. And that's kind of, if you think about it, and I, some might get angry at me for saying this, but a coping mechanism almost. Mm-hmm. It's compensating for a deficiency or whatever. But the reality now is that this is the way we test and this is the way we teach. Mm-hmm. And until that changes, I don't think we're going to change what we're qualifying or describing as a disability or we may but it's not gonna be a paradigm shift and then i'd also say i mean the founder of JetBlue is has add amongst other things throughout history or not throughout history because diagnosis of add isn't a long-standing diagnosis but there are significant numbers of people who have ADD and who are utterly brilliant. And there's a quote, and I'm going to butcher it when I say it, but the founder of JetBlue said something to the effect of, uh, I can manage a some number, a large number, uh, plane fleet, but I can't do my electric bill. It's the mundane things in life. I, I can't focus on the mundane things in life. Okay. And that's, yeah. I think in some ways, for some people, that's what ADD is. And no offense to either of your careers, but I think a lot of people would consider the questions on the LSAC the mundane things in life. I don't know. I think disability is a really tough issue from the get-go, and I think the emergence of the notion of learning disabilities have has made it a difficult issue to explain and to delineate. It also deals with the mind, right, which we're still just we're, trying we're, We to have understand. a pixelated <laughs> image. <laughs> We don't really, really fully understand it. Well, Nathan, did you have anything else you wanted to say? No, this was really interesting. Mika, thanks so much for coming on. Um, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming over. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Bye. All right. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, thanks for listening to the show. And we'll talk to you next time.